This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Rob Schwartzwalder serves as a senior vice president for the Family Research Council based out of Washington, D.C. Uh, he also oversees communication and policy teams for FRC, uh, specifically with the Marriage and Religion Research Institute. He spent many years on Capitol Hill as a chief of staff for two different members of Congress. The senator and congressman that Rob worked for have held seats in the Senate and House Armed Services Committee, Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, on and on his resume goes. In 2001, uh, from 97 to 2001, he was the director of communications at the National Association of Manufacturers. In 2001, for President George W. Bush. In 2001, under President Bush, Rob was a senior speechwriter for HHS. Rob has contributed to a number of op-eds. You might have seen him online. If you follow me on Facebook, you've seen me repost and reposition a lot of Rob's writings. It's a blast to have you in studio. Thanks for coming by, Rob. Thanks for having me. It is great to be here. Great Welcome to be with to you. Welcome to Middle Tennessee, my friend. Good place to be. Well, let's talk about some um, complicated things. Let's talk about... Uh, same-sex marriage and SCOTUS and the decision that's happened a few months back now that um, it's now the law of the land that a gay couple, same-sex couple, can go to a justice of the peace, can go to a, I suspect, a minister, uh, anyone, and say, I want to have my partner and and I want to get married, and the state now authorizes that marriage. It was interesting, within a couple of days after the ruling, a writer in Time magazine named Mark Oppenheimer referred to the decision. It's the name of it is the Obergefell decision. Mm-hmm. And that decision he, he described as, now that this is settled law, it is anything but settled law. Roe v. Wade for the last 42 years has not been settled law. The Dred Scott decision that supposedly settled the issue of slavery provoked a civil war six years later. It is our sincere hope, of course, that nothing like that recurs. But to suggest that this issue is somehow done, which is the, the narrative of the left. All right, g- g- give give our listeners a little a little civics lesson. When when the legis- we have three branches of government: executive, administrative, and judicial. Judicial, judicial made a decision, but they did not make law. They basically what they did was they usurped the role of Congress and the role of the states. In thirty-three states, where a ballot initiative had been held on same-sex marriage, or where the legislature had acted. 31 of those states approved marriage as the union of one man and one woman. All it took was a handful of federal judges to say, uh-uh-uh, you can't do it. The result being that the votes of over 30 million Americans who voted for, saint, for traditional marriage were vitiated. The Supreme Court, by one member, one vote, specifically Justice Anthony Kennedy, who wrote the majority opinion, said, I am going to go ahead and find in the 14th Amendment under the Equal Protection Clause, a so-called right to same-sex marriage. He even went so far as to say that homosexuality is, quote, an immutable characteristic. If it is immutable, why are there thousands of men and women who say they no longer have same-sex attraction or no longer identify themselves as gay and lesbian? Race is a benign characteristic, and Mm -hmm. it is immutable. Homosexuality, whatever its causes, has to do with conduct in terms at least of acting out, at least in terms of so-called marriage. If it is a conduct, then it is volitional. 
if it's volitional, then that's something that is not an inherent right. Again, for the civics-minded lesson, back to seventh grade for me, if, if I have a preference, where does that fall? I could have any kind of preference. You can have any kind of preference. Preferences are not rights. I might want to be a professional basketball player. At the age of 57, at 5 feet 6, ain't going to happen. Things that we want are oh, not Where's necessary. your dreams? Come on now. <laughs> I am. I know it's I'm characterized and riven by self-doubt. It's a personal tragedy. But Who was at, it? Spud Webb? What, he, he was five foot something, wasn't yeah, he? But he was 30 years younger than me. Oh, there is that. Okay. Um, at any rate. So, so help. Preferences, but our culture has won this war in the populist ear. We're made this way. It's my identity. Who are you to tell me, Rob, that I can't be gay, transgendered, lesbian, uh, questioning, bisexual. Absolutely. Nobody is coming along to anybody's bedroom at three o'clock in the morning, kicking the door down and saying, that's not something you can do with a partner of the same gender, the same sex. And by the way, I've been in a debate with a leading gay advocate, gay rights advocate, who informed me that gender and sex are not the same thing and that I'm ignorant because I don't grasp the distinction between them. Gender is essentially apparently how someone feels. You look at the medical textbooks and so forth, that's one of the more ludicrous statements that you mm-hmm. can make objectively, and yet that's part of the argument that's being made. Let me make something that, that I think is critical. What essentially those who advocate for so-called same-sex marriage propose is that the basis of marriage is volition and affection. I want to get married to you. You want to get married to me. We have affection for one another, ergo we should be, quote, married. Um, using that standard, and Justice Roberts, to his credit, in his response, yes. said this. He said, why limit it to two? You essentially, if your only criteria are, I want to marry you and I have affection for you, what's to stop two men and three women from getting, quote, married? And there are already suits, lawsuits along right. these lines. Um, polyamory, polygamy is a natural outgrowth. There is no objective reason why you stop at two. Those who say, as Justice Kennedy sort of at least inferred, no, nobody's saying marriage should be more than two people. Nonsense. There are lots of people saying that. If you open up that Pandora's box, then marriage becomes meaningless. Furthermore, if anyone can be, quote, married, close quote, if the numbers don't matter, the gender doesn't matter, then what you have essentially is a legal contract. What you're looking at potentially is an explosion of so-called marriages between multiple partners that could completely upend the whole issues, a whole series of issues, property rights, custody rights of children, places of residence, the kinds of taxes that are imposed on small businesses or on couples, testimonies in courts of law. This invites all kinds of problems. The other justices, Scalia in his very acerbic dissent, Roberts, Thomas, Alito, they envisioned some of these things. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it fell on completely deaf ears. Someone wrote a haiku about Justice Kennedy's decision, and it went something like this. Love, love, love. All we need is love. Everyone loves each other. Love. This was a, if all due respect, and I do respect his office, Justice Kennedy wrote one of the most abominable, illogical, unsupportable, unconstitutional decisions in American history. It is now supposedly, and I quote, settled law. It is not settled. County clerks are beginning to resign. States' attorney generals in places like Texas are saying, wait a minute. We're going to look exactly at what the legal obligations this imposes are. Interrupt you. Both Alabama and Texas have put a put a stay on this, have they not? They have sought at least to put a stay. Right. Yes, and they're working hard to see what the legal implications are. 
I, I think that the key thing is, though, one of the things that I haven't said is this. 82% of the American people, this is a poll that came out today by Pat Cadell, who is Jimmy Carter's pollster. He is a Democrat. He is not a conservative. He is not a Republican. Pat Cadell found 82% of the American people said that if a florist or a baker or a wedding photographer or whoever else chooses not commercially to participate in a same-sex wedding, that person should not be obligated to do so. Mm-hmm. 82%. This is a secular poll coming from a liberal source. Let's get to yeah. the believer. Uh, not not even the church. What's the church's position? I get asked this all the time. What's the church's position? I want to hold a mirror up and say, well, tell me what it is. <laughs> You're the church. I'm not the church. I am a pastor. I'm a teacher. I'm an elder, but I'm not the church. I can't speak for 6,000 people. Um, I can make opinion. I can make statements. I can teach truth. What do we do? There's so much that we can do. The first thing we need to do is make very clear that in standing for truth, we are not being ungracious. If any gay or lesbian or transgendered person is listening to this, they need to know and be assured there is a living God who loves them, who created them, who chose to make them as image bearers of himself. In the book of Leviticus, there are four types of sexual sin that are condemned. Incest, bestiality, adultery between a man and a woman, several types of it, in fact, are described, and Mm -hmm. homosexuality. They are all described as, in Hebrew, disgusting to God. Homosexuality is not a unique sin. It's not something that we should elevate as somehow um, people who uh, identify as gay or lesbian or who struggle with same-sex attraction. They are to be loved and affirmed as image bearers of God and as people like the rest of us who are sinners who can be saved by grace. I have a friend named Rosaria Butterfield. You might have mm-hmm. even had her on your program. Had her on. She has said something, words to this effect, I do not regard myself as ex-gay. I, re- I regard myself as a sinner saved by grace. Mm-hmm. Well, and Matt Moore, Matt Moore was very uh, clear about this as well. He said, we're not gay or not gay or celibate or whatever. We're sinners. Yeah. And, and to love us is not to tolerate us. To love us is to call us to repentance. Well, I, th- I think that that's a key point. And one of the things that's hard, and, and this is, I think, uh, you talk about how the church should approach this. Many gay, in fact, the majority of gay and lesbian men and women will say, being homosexual is not something I do. It is who I am. We need to find a way of saying, no, it is not. It is not who you are. It might be a desire that you have. It might be a practice that you have engaged in. It is not who you are. When I was um, the, teaching on Sodom and Gomorrah not long after the SCOTUS decision, I made the observation at the end of the message that um, by that definition, I am a womanizer, and, uh, and it's my right to tell Cindy, I'm sorry, God made me a womanizer. Mm-hmm. and uh, these aren't lustful, immoral thoughts. Uh, this is who I am. I need to act out on my identity, and my goal is to conquest as many women as possible. That's exactly right. If you take a look at the natural bent or desire that any of us have toward different types of sin that we gravitate to for whatever reason, God gives us no excuse. And we have to make sure uh, that we don't accept this argument that gay is being, is, that being gay is an identity. When you look at the uh, 2030 demographic in the so-called evangelical fundamental Bible-believing slice, um, those men and women are completely fine with their peers saying, I'm gay, I'm transgendered, I'm a lesbian, I'm bi, and they uh, sort of brandish just love and, and were loving and kind. And mm-hmm. I mean, I've had one, one of my children uh, at one point said, Dad, that's the way they're made. Mm-hmm. They were made that way, Dad. How can you say that? 
Well, two responses to the last point first. In terms of um, why are people why do people gravitate towards same sex attraction? There are several reasons. I mean, one is the classic Freudian analysis, which says there was a, a passive or a hostile father um, who did not engage, or conversely, passive hostile mother. Um, that child was vulnerable to the affection of someone who was homosexual, and as a result, became homosexual. Could involve issues of abuse, and that's a corollary to that. Many people who are uh, gay, identify as gay, will acknowledge that they were sexually molested as children. Um, some people will tell you, and I just talked to a young man last week about this issue. He said, I have never in my life been drawn to the female form. I have always been attracted to men. Um, he had an interesting theory about why that was. It had to do with the benign brain tumor. I don't know if that's just accurate right, or not. Right. Bottom line is, whatever the reasons, people are drawn to different types of sin for different reasons. As with you, um, when I was in college, I fell in love about 10 times a day. <laughs> and if I had acted on those impulses, I would probably have a 1,000 children right, right now. Right. In his grace, God kept me from that. And I've been married to the same woman for 34 years faithfully. Uh, we were pure before we were married, and I honor the Lord for that. We, were, we have been faithful to each other since then. It has not always been, as a young man, wasn't always easy. Sure. God in his grace gave me the strength to do that. Now, here's one thing that we need to say, though, in honesty. What you and I have experienced as heterosexual males in marriage is the fulfillment of our sexual desire. We are telling men and women, many of them young men and women, at the peak of their sexual desire, you cannot participate in any kind of sexual activity until you're married, and you don't want to get married to another person of the, of the opposite gender. We are demanding of them a measure of restraint and of holiness that is very difficult for a young person. And I would add, it's more difficult for them than it was for you and me. They are saturated yes. by... The over-sexualized right. culture. I mean, whether you go back to sitcoms they grew up with or you know, pornography on the Internet, the ease of... I mean, you probably, like I remember the first time I saw pornography, I was a boy in my neighborhood and there was a magazine on the side of the street. I can still see that image. I had exactly the same Still experience. see that picture. Yep. And now... I get unwanted email. We have to have filters in our offices and home to prevent this stuff from spawning on our computers. The ease with which a click or two takes us there. They've also demonstrated the overstimulation of young men who watch porn for hours. Absolutely right. Affects them. And by their 20s, they have uh, dysfunction, sexuality, and marriage because they've been so overstimulated. So the culture has said it's all fine. There's no shame, no guilt. And we're these crazy old white guys that have had good marriages saying, you can't do that until you're married. Why do I get married? There's no reason to get mm -hmm. married. Sexual revolution makes it all available. And, oh, by the way, we can hook up if we want to. Right. It makes it so much more difficult. The thing that I, I would add to all of that or qualify is um, you and I are aging white guys. I don't say we're old. We are in the prime, but we are aging. Um, we are aging white guys. His relative, but, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, see, I poked that in. But in his grace, God's standards for sexual behavior at all times are the same for all people and they're everywhere. Good. And they're good. And they're good. Therefore are good. And, and I, to hold out that, look, this is more satisfying and more fulfilling and holy, and God can look down metaphorically and smile upon the marriage bed right. between one man and one woman there's nothing more beautiful, fabulous, intoxicating in a good way, wonderful, holy, all those adjectives. And yet the 
lack of satisfaction, the dissatisfaction, the egregious nature of more and more perverse forms of sexuality to try to find something that it can never fulfill. Uh, it's FRC will soon be posting online um, a fascinating in-house lecture we had. It was a basically a briefing, um, but we'll post it publicly. It was with a neurosurgeon talking about pornography addiction. This man, he was trained by the man who himself was trained by the father of neurosurgery. He is highly respected in his field, and he gave a presentation on the addictive character of pornography. Mm. And what you've described is exactly right. And fascinating uh, insight. There's a professor at Yale University who has written about the nature of pornographic attraction and addiction. He said pornography not only objectifies women, it animalizes them. Mm. And this is one of the things that really is, to your point about young men, pornography portrays women as these sexually voracious um, creatures who want to be treated in a vile and perverse and even violent way. It lies about the nature of sexual interest in women and animalizes them such that young men who get married um, and who have been active in pornography, actively looking at pornography, they expect things from their wives their wives cannot possibly fulfill. I know of one young woman who has been in a counseling situation who reported um, she had to get physical therapy because her husband demanded of her sexual acts that resulted in severe injury. Mm. He didn't get that out of his mind. He got that out of pornography. This is recurrent, and this is a couple within an evangelical church that you and I are both familiar with. Um, There are all, this is replete throughout the country in every church. I'm counseling right now several men who have pornography addictions. It is a pandemic. And one of the things we have to recognize to deal with, and I know you know this, um, it is as addictive as any drug, perhaps more so. Mm. This is an addiction and needs to be treated like an addiction. To those listening who are wrestling with this, and estimates vary, 40% of men, whatever, in churches are dealing with this, you can't go it alone. You've got to find an accountability group, and you have Mm -hmm. to find a way of recognizing this is not just something, some innocent little pastime. It's evil. And the women who participate in pornography, particularly, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, I would go between 80 to 90%, are victimized. They don't want to be doing this. They have been lured into it. It's become a pattern and a habit. Many of times they're, they're drunk or are on drugs in order to get them to do these things. Oftentimes there's massive transmission of sexually transmitted disease. This is not a victimless crime. They are actively abetting the abuse, the trafficking, the prostitution of women. Let's, let's move back to uh, what we began talking about, so the SCOTUS decision. We, we took an important trail, but let's go back to um, what else we can do um, as, as a religious minister of the gospel, if I want to call myself that, um, they will knock on my door mm-hmm. at some point, say, Michael, um, we go to your church, we're part of fellowship, they go to the church you attend in Virginia, Rob, um, we love God, we believe all the things you believe, and we, we love you so much, we want you to uh, give us a religious ceremony, mm-hmm. and we say no. You have right now the legal right to say no. You also have the moral obligation from Scripture to continue to say no. If that means ultimately 10, 15, 20 years, whatever long, uh, the federal government says you no longer can perform federally recognized marriage. You can no longer license marriages. So be it. That's actually a relatively new phenomenon in the history of the church. I've written something about this um, where government has authorized Christian pastors, be they Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, whatever, to, 
to license marriages legally. If they take that away from us, so be it. Um, no one thought, at least I didn't think, 20 years ago that same-sex marriage would advance this closely. In 2004, President Bush was reelected. Elected on um, one of his campaign planks was um, a constitutional amendment to institutionalize marriage. Um, that He immediately abandoned that, sadly. But why, that same year, I don't remember, it was four or six states in 2004 voted um, for the traditional natural definition of marriage. Now, 11 years later, the Supreme Court has jettisoned all of that. We don't know how rapidly this is coming. But whatever the federal government demands or demands that we do, um, we cannot buckle to that. We cannot in any way conform to it. And, and I feel good about even our church and our elders and our leadership saying, you know, worst case scenario, we lose our tax exemption. Worst case scenario. But, but then I have to bake the cake. Well, it, then, then right? I, I think it will drive Christians out of certain yeah. industries. And, and the, one of the things that's um, a coming soon, I think, is the reality that a lot of Christians who have kind of um, lived um, on the fat of the land, as it were, in a culture that is friendly to their values, this is a post-Christian society. Um, it is, of course, there are many Christians in public office. Nobody is coming with bayonets into your church on Sunday morning, not suggesting that. But in terms of being able to live out your faith, there is an there is an obvious hostility by some to our ability to do that. And if you're a Christian baker, and it comes a choice between shutting down um, and baking a cake for a gay wedding that says, Mark and Steve, congratulations, then you need to shut down. Easy for me to say, in a way, but I know people who've had to do it. And, and yet, there could be an argument made to say, look, as a Christian, we bake cakes for people that are not believers. We mm-hmm. might be baking a cake for a Hindu couple, an Islamic couple. Is there is there a way to say, bake the cake? You're providing a service. You are providing a service, but you're also, in a sense, you are actively participating. Let's take let's take the example of the Hindu couple that gets married. Are we Hindus? Do we believe in the multiple polytheistic gods of Hinduism? Um, no, we don't. We believe in the God of the Bible, the triune Godhead, period. That being said, you are not endorsing that ceremony by or, or, or endorsing the religious ceremony behind that. You're endorsing the union of a man and a woman in marriage. Similar, and that's take that to homosexuality. It is an intrinsic legal recognition of a union that is disobedient to God. There's a distinction there. I hope I'm making that a clear one. You can't. You you can honor the institution of marriage between a man and a woman, even if it's conducted in a ceremony with which you have profound theological disagreement. You cannot do that in a same-sex ceremony, because it, it in, in itself, the union it is recognizing and celebrating is an affront to God. What, what would be the downside of the church differentiating between civil and, quote, religious ceremonies? Well, honestly, I, I think that there is a, a case to be made that with respect to religious ceremonies, if you perform a wedding and you don't have the ability legally to, um, to recognize that marriage or to solemnize that marriage legally— let them go to the county clerk across the street, have the county clerk do it, get a marriage certificate. Okay, you're married. But then before the Lord, just as we have the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and of baptism, these are not legal ceremonies. They're things we do within the church. If that's what it comes to, it would be unfair. I think it would be discriminatory toward Christians, but so be it. Then we would do it that way. We would honor marriage civilly so that there is a legal recognition of the union but then we would conduct our marriage ceremony as if nothing happened, because really, before God, it is not. It's the same thing. 
before God and this company, you were making a pledge to each other. That hasn't changed or would not change. In this country, which was founded on the rule of law, founded on object, the idea of objective truth, founded on a written constitution precisely so that those in power could not abuse the law for their own whims. For us to lose these freedoms is troubling. Right now, we have the tools with which to fight. We have things that we can do using our citizenship and the liberties we still enjoy to try not only to thwart the erosion of those things, but to rather instead buttress them and strengthen them and make them again regnant in our country. As Christians, out of love and out of patriotism, we should do that. You can find out more about Rob Schwartzwalder on the site right below where you're listening. If you'll search the name Schwartzwalder, that's a mouthful, S-C-H-W-A-R-Z, Walder. Thanks for being on In Context. Thanks, Michael. 